You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Hello, friend, and welcome to episode number 131 of the Business for Good podcast. I was psyched to get so much feedback from listeners on the last episode with Shabar Ali, the CEO of Garden for Wildlife. And thanks to everybody who wrote in saying that you intend to rip out some or all of your grass lawn to replace it with pollinator friendly native plants. So let me ask you if you do decide to do that, please send me some photos. I'd love to see the real world impact of this podcast in your life and on the life of some of your wild neighbors too. So thanks so much, everybody. If you liked this last episode, I think you're going to like this one too, because if you've spent any time at all in the startup ecosystem, you start realizing pretty quickly that the U.S. isn't alone in producing a lot of startups. But there are some very small countries like Israel and Singapore, for example, that consistently punch above their weight when it comes to new company creation. In fact, Israel is often known as the startup nation, and there's even a popular book on the topic with that very title. And if you're in the startup food technology space, whether in Israel or elsewhere, there's one name you are sure to know, The Kitchen. Founded a decade ago, The Kitchen has incubated some of the best-known alternative protein startups out there, from cultivated meat maker Aleph Farms to precision fermentation alt-dairy company Imaginary to plant-based egg creator Zero Egg and more. As you'll hear in this conversation, The Kitchen invests seven figures, that's U.S. dollars, in each startup that joins its incubator. And in addition, it provides lab space, culinary equipment, governance and corporate setup advice, and more. For the past decade since its founding, The Kitchen has been run by the same CEO, Jonathan Berger, and we've got him on this show this episode. Under his tenure, the incubator has made 27 investments in startups that have ultimately gone on to raise about $350 million U.S. dollars. In this conversation, Jonathan and I talk about everything from why Israel was so startup-friendly to why Israel has so many vegetarians, to why the alternative meat industry has hit such a rough patch around the entire world, including in the U.S., and how the Hamas massacre on October 7th has affected the Israeli startup community. It is a riveting discussion with someone who's been at the helm of the Israeli food tech space for many years. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I bring you Jonathan Berger. Jonathan, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Hey, Paul. Good to hear you. Good morning. You know, it's so funny. We see each other in passing at all these conferences, but we never get to have like an in-depth conversation. So I'm really glad that we're getting together now to chat about the good work of the kitchen. But I feel like we're like always ships in the night that are passing by each other. And I want to talk to you, but we never get a real chance. So I'm glad that we're making it happen. Same here. My pleasure. Actually, I was really waiting uh, for this podcast recording, and I have so much to share with you. And the timing is perfect today, Paul. So let's get started. (laughs) Okay, cool. Let us get started. So I was really looking forward to being in Israel for Foodtech IL, which you guys are a major sponsor of. And it's a huge conference for anybody in the food tech world. I'd say like, you know, there are certain conferences that are like the marquee conferences, and you guys have built that. Unfortunately, this year, the massacre that Hamas perpetrated obviously caused it to be delayed. And so I was really looking forward to being over there and and being a speaker at the conference. My wife was going to be joining me. But let me ask you, is there any sense of when Foodtech IL may be rescheduled or is it still too early to know? It is still too early to know. We penciled our calendars for November 24th. 
but it's too early to know. And there are many moving parts on this side of the ocean. Let's, let's have our fingers crossed. Okay. Well, we'll be rooting for many reasons for the conference to be reorganized and I'll look forward to being over there at the end of this year for sure. And maybe even uh, earlier than that. So the kitchen is a sponsor of food tech IL, but it's so much more than that. Like this is this in- investment arm of a major food company. If you're not from Israel, you might not have heard of the Strauss group, but it's a huge food company. And this is their investment arm. It's a very unique situation. It's almost as if you know, like Kellogg had its own program where they invested in startups. So tell us what is the kitchen and how is it operating and generating all of these really cool startups out of Israel? It's exactly like you said, it's like the investment arm of the Strauss Group, the second largest food company in Israel. Strauss is partnering with PepsiCo in, in the US, owning together Sabra, Deep Spreads, Hummus, you may be familiar with that. Um, yeah. We've had the CEO of Sabra on an episode earlier on this podcast. We'll link to that in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But I'm a huge hummus fan and, and certainly of Sabra too. Joy, yeah. Uh, yeah, so beside that, Shaus is also partnering with Adenon in the second largest dairy in Israel and with a few other partners like in China and water companies. So it's it's local and global company. And 10 years ago, they, they realized that long-term growth would come from food techs and they had the patient capital to invest. Luckily, the uh, state of Israel thought that it's a good idea to start a new ecosystem uh, adjacent to these famous cybersecurity coming from Israel, SaaS, uh, fintech. And they, they backed us up when we came to them and suggested to start like a seed stage VC that is unique in the fact that we are also companies builders. So what that means, besides giving the startup the first check of about a million and a million and a half, we are also offering them an office space and lab space and support of, of a fairly large team that works with them on each thing that the startup may need, be it their, their marketing, social, social media, also the technological uh, milestone, how to develop an R&D plan, how to do the scale-up, regulation, IP, go-to-market, how to fundraise, even on corporate uh, governance, how to, how to properly uh, manage your board, how to have a proper insurance on day one. So many, many things that uh, save the startup a, a ton of time and, and a ton of mistakes. So our slogan is that we are trying not to do the same mistakes twice. And, and so far, we've, we've done that with 25 companies that we incubated in our facilities. Some of them are famous, famous names like Ale Farms, Amai Proteins, Imagine Dairy. Some of them are less famous. Out of the team, uh, we closed the uh, shop for two companies. So we also know how to do that. That's part of life. And basically, we, we are offering this two years program, as I said, with the support of the team, the support of Shrouds Group, a executive free of charge, everything they need. With the support of the partners, so we have on our advisory board, we have Danon, we have PepsiCo, we have Mondelez, we have Gia, and all those top executives are also assisting the startups. And we have the backing of the Israel Innovation Authority. The one thing that we are trying to do in those two years is help the startup to get to a fundable milestone, uh, meaning that they would be able to fundraise full-on investment. We might join, but we never lead the next round, and we measure ourselves against the total amount of dollars that our portfolio companies raised. And to date, it is close to $350 million. 
So for seed stage companies, even if you divide it by 25 companies, this is, this is kind of an okay number as a target. For sure. So I know you've been CEO for a decade now. Is that how long the kitchen has existed? Yeah, exactly. So we started uh, January 15th, so this is like uh, nine years. Okay, cool. Congratulations. So basically, in a decade, you've had 25 companies. And in a decade, only two have gone under. That's really an incredible, an incredibly low mortality rate, right? Yeah, so 25 is after the two. So it was 27, two went under and 25 are actively uh, working. Yeah. I mean, I would say normally, you know, startups have generally like a 90% mortality rate. And of course, the infant mortality rate is the most precarious. And so maybe what you guys are doing is actually dramatically reducing the risk of infant mortality by giving them, you said, a, a seven-figure investment. I presume that's U.S. dollars and not in Israeli shekels. Obviously. That's a, that's a U, one million to one and a half uh, U.S., yeah. Right. Plus all these other services, whether it's, you know, advisory equipment and, and at, at free of charge. So we don't we don't take uh, like in kind and any sort. This you're is you're not this taking you're not taking shares in the company for that million. No, no, we are taking shares of the company for the million and a million and a half based on fair market valuation. But everything we do, contrary to accelerators, we don't charge for our time extra equity or anything like that. This is part of our agreement with the Israel Innovation Authority that we would support the startup in exchange for the Israel Innovation Authority support in us, in a way. Yeah. And presumably the kitchen is only available for Israeli companies, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So that's a really amazing track record. I mean, I think even if you were to look at, let's say, like a Y Combinator, which is among the most prestigious accelerators you know, they don't have, you know, 25 out of 27 companies still in existence many, many years later. So what do you think it is that is creating such success for the incubies of the kitchen? Obviously, they may still fail. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? But so far, so good. So what do you think it is? A few things. I think the most important thing is is that we are very passionate about what we do. You know, we, we enjoy so much building companies. This is what we love. This is what we're good at. This is what we put our time and heart and soul and everything. And and we we are in the ditches together with the entrepreneurs, okay? So thanks to the fact that they are sitting in our premises, you know, we get to see them almost on a daily basis. And when start, something happens, you can immediately see it on the face of, of the entrepreneur. So it's really important. Point number two. Before making the investment, we work with the startup close to a year to prepare the startup for our IC. Very often, when the companies come to us, their business model is not right. Sometimes their R&D plan is not <clears throat> you know, uh, ambitious enough or realistic enough, what have you. And, and our average time of preparing a startup for our IC is about a year. On top of that, we have a... a double layers IC. So the Israel Innovation Authority also examined the startup. They appoint a special examiner that work with the startup for a couple of weeks to validate the technology, to ask them tough questions, to send them back to the drawing board. And only then he would provide a positive uh, feedback and the IC of the Israel Innovation Authority would approve the investment. So those that pass this, I would say, very Tiny holes screen are are a beginning with relatively high chance of success. Um, so so this is this is the thing. And the third thing is that we are trying to be 
uh, very repetitive in everything we do. So we have like standard operating procedure for everything we do and everything is documented. So when a startup enters our program, the time management is very efficient because we've done that so many times and we are just duplicating the same SOPs for every startup. And the last but not least, you know, you need some luck. And I guess that we are lucky. Yeah. So what is the percentage then? Like, uh, you know, for example, we had on this show, Steve Jervitson, who is a, a venture capitalist who has made really, really big bets on companies like Tesla and Hotmail and Skype and SpaceX and has become phenomenally wealthy as a result of it. But I asked him, what percentage of companies that pitch you do you ultimately end up actually making an investment in? And he said it was far less than 1%. And so you're talking about this really rigorous screen, you call it the tiny hole. How many companies don't make it through? So if there's 27 that have made it through, how many didn't? So we've screened today close to 1,500 opportunities. So that's about 1.5%, I, I would say. So yeah. So the so so basically the chance of anybody applying to you is almost 99% chance they're not getting into the kitchen. Correct. Right. Yeah, so I mean that that could uh, you know uh, very easily explain why there's such a, a high success rate then because you have such a rigorous selection process. Yeah, and and, and you know as a matter of fact Paul, uh, because we know that we are going to put so much passion and so much time and, and you know all our hearts it's not just the money that we are going to commit it's a lot of work. So we are very careful about those that are selected because we know we're going to spend with them two years and we want that to be fun. Yes, indeed. I, I, I do think that fun is like an underrated part of the process of doing startups. So it's a lot of hard work, but also sometimes it is fun. Let me ask you, you know, alternative proteins is a big deal for for the kitchen. If it's funded by Strauss Group, which is a big food company with a pretty heavy footprint in animal agriculture, dairy, and so on, why alternative proteins? Like, why is Strauss so interested in animal-free food technologies? So I, I would quote Andy Grove famous quotation about, you know, those that, um, if, if, you're, if you're not destroying your own business, someone else destroy you. I, I apologize for not quoting exactly, but the term the, the idea is 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 something like that. So, you know, the, the the market forces and the changes in consumer demand are are such that if you're not coming with the right offering, someone else would come and would destroy your own business. So I think Strauss was looking at the kitchen as kind of a hedge with the alternative protein technologies that if if all stays the same it is today, so be it. So we spend whatever. X amount of millions of dollars. But if the food system is going to change dramatically, as we saw in, for example, dairy beverages with the uh, plant-based dairy or plant-based non-dairy hitting 12% market share, then Shouse is, is a very big dairy. You want to make sure that they are protected in a way uh, or they hedge the risk and they have a solution. So a good example is Imagine Dairy that is going to do the next generation of cowless milk using precision fermentation. So basically, imagine there is growing whey protein without a cow in a big, big fermenter. And they just announced about a week ago that they own a facility at a significant scale that can sell products worth of millions of dollars this year. So, so Strauss, by partnering with the kitchen, 
get access to such technologies that maybe would be utilized by Strauss uh, to the best of their consumers. That's a really fascinating way to look at it. And it reminds me about what happened in the film market. So if you think about, you know, like Kodak and Kodak, yeah. You know, both of these companies knew about digital, right? For decades, they had been making their business based on analog gelatin-based film. And Kodak actually first invented digital, but they were afraid it was going to cannibalize its core business, you know, darkroom chemicals and the the actual print film and so on. Uh, Whereas Canon thought, well, if this is the future, we should hedge our bet and actually pursue it. And we all know what happened. Kodak went bankrupt and Canon is the largest manufacturer of digital cameras on the planet. But they're still selling us the same thing, right? It's still a way to capture our memories. Like it's the same. Exactly. Like, you know, when you take a photo, you're still getting the same end. It's capturing the experience, the memory that you want to preserve. Whereas in meat or milk, it's really like the same thing. Like we were trying to create the same experience that people want, which is, you know, to have the functionality of cow's milk or to have the satiating effect of eating beef, et cetera, but done in a way that is dramatically more efficient, more humane and and healthier. And so I actually think that there's a whole group of these companies like Strauss that are really forward thinking. And there are others that have their head in the sand, like Kodak, that don't want to see any change that say, look, we've been slaughtering animals for thousands of years. We're going to keep slaughtering animals for thousands of years. But some of them, whether it's like Maple Leaf Foods in Canada, the largest meat company, which has acquired a number of plant-based meat companies and tried launching its own brands of various alternative products as well, Strauss in Israel, these companies seem more forward-thinking. So do you think that that is for Strauss something unique to them as an Israeli food company? Do they just have the right leadership at play? Like, What is it that led them to think, okay, let's cannibalize our core business? So I think this is uh, the combination of all the above. Definitely forward-looking leadership. And Ofa Strauss, the chairperson, this is what she does all day, you know, read and, and look 10 years ahead, etc. So Strauss is traded company, but the majority of the stocks is owned by the Strauss family. And Ofa Strauss is the third generation. So it's a lot of responsibility. So A, leadership. B, the... I would say financial capabilities to do that because not every time Strauss can afford to invest in things that would materialize in a decade. And for example, right now we are undergoing kind of a challenging time and the investments uh, are kind of uh, being on on hold for for a period of time. But uh, generally you want to have the resources to do that. Number three, I think that when you tell the executive in the company that you're investing in something that would cannibalize the business, it's never going to fly. But if, if, if the way is to present that, exactly as you said, we are selling the experience. Some consumer would like to see that from regular milks. I would like to see that from cowless milk. But we are drawing, we are trying to address everyone needs. So it's, it's a side-by-side and not cannibalizing. And, and I think that Strauss had occasions in the past that they were not prepared and that others took their market share. And you know, the funny story is that when you go to those companies that provide you market share, let's say Nielsen data or things like that, they show you just the category that you're playing in. Okay, so if you're in yogurt company, they would so they would show you your yogurts, and sometimes you don't know that 
because you just didn't order this uh, study, that next to your category, there is another category, which is called plant-based yogurt. And it takes time. Now everybody's looking at that. But in the past, it, t- it took time for, for managers to know that next door, someone is growing a very successful business that they are not even aware of that. So I don't think that cannibalizing is the right term. It's, it's more like protecting your, your core by being active in the future competition. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is how we approach the, the management in Strauss. Interesting. Why is it, Jonathan, that Israel seems to generate so many startups? You know, like it, it's almost like its own Silicon Valley over there. Like so often when you hear about startups, if they're not coming from the United States, the chances are they're coming from Israel. Uh, of course, there are startups all over the world. But in terms of places that really seem to churn out a lot of entrepreneurial activity, Israel is right at the top of the list. Why? Why is this tiny little country in the Middle East when, you know, so, so startup friendly when we don't really see that many startups coming from any of the neighboring countries? Yeah. So first of all, thank you for the compliment. As a proud Israeli, I uh, appreciate uh, this observation. I think that these combination of a few things. So obviously you're familiar with drip irrigation that was invented uh, out of necessity. So I think that uh, Israel being a, a, an island, practically speaking, surrounded by uh, not so friendly neighbors, we have to uh, protect ourselves and, and have our food security and, and different sources of food, even if we are not able to produce it locally. So necessity is the mother of all invention. This is part number one. As, as we all know, the community feeling of, of Israel, thanks to serving in the army, thanks to being a small country, thanks to our roots as communi- Jewish communities around the world. So whatever it is, but the sense of community is, is really strong. And, and in a meeting... In Israel, there was a, a meetup that was organized by GFI Israel, and Bruce Friedrich joined, and he was on stage, and he was asked the same question, and his answer was that he just found out that all the entrepreneurs in Israel, the food tech entrepreneurs in Israel, are connected in a WhatsApp group, and they're helping each other with everything one need. So if you need a designer for your uh, presentation, or if you need a, an exporter for a frozen product, whatever, you just put it in the, in the WhatsApp group, and in less than five minutes, you will get someone that will answer and give you the details. So everyone is helping each other. So that's, that's the second point. I think the third point is the resilience. And unfortunately, this resilience is being proven these days dramatically, but we've been through so many challenges that we just don't take no for an answer. And that's, that's on, on many aspects. And I think that resilience is a key component when, when you're building a, your startup. So as an investor in some of these companies, Jonathan, does that bother you? So for example, you're invested in Aleph Farms, right? And let's say Supermeat, which is another Israeli cultivated meat company, which theoretically could be a competitor of Aleph Farms, says, hey, we need help with this one thing. And let's say within five minutes, as you pointed out, Aleph Farms says, hey, here's we learned this the hard way. Don't make our mistakes here. Do this instead. And they give that to Supermeat. As an investor in Aleph Farms, but not in Supermeat, does that bother you? I trust the management of Aleph Farms to be selective on the things that they are giving. So if it is not, I would say, core IP, just something that is, you know, is not 
hurting their competitive edge, then why not? Because tomorrow, Supermeat would give them back. But I'm, I'm sure that Aleph Farms would not do that if this is something that has to do with a unique supplier of something in the media that it took them ages to find out. So it's not that ideal. But, but in most cases, if the things are not of a, of a competitive edge, then people are sharing even the, if they are competitors. And I think the best example is that following the kitchen, the, sec- the, the, the largest food company in Israel, Tenuva, they started their own incubator. And, and it's called the First Start. And they are like, if, if we are nine years old, I think they are four or five years old. And they are located in the north of Israel, in the Galilee, in a place called Kiryat Shmona. It was heavily bombed. And they had to evacuate. And, and the same day they were evacuated, I called the CEO and I said, listen, we have extra space and extra, extra lab space. Why don't you come and work from our facility? So we are a great opponent in a way because we are trying or let's say competing on deal flow. But hey, we, we can still compete on deal flow and they can operate from our facility. They end up not coming for various reasons, but just an example. Presumably, Hezbollah is a greater opponent of, of the kitchen than Tanuva. So, right. Exactly. And you know what, Paul? This is, this is an amazing thing. So what, what we are telling all the entrepreneurs that the other company in Israel is not their competition. The company from, from Berlin or from the Valley or from London or from Singapore, this is the competition. Because once investors come to Israel, they would invest in one of the Israelis companies. So we are trying to compete against different hubs around the world and attract the investors to come to Israel and make investments here. If this is in company A or company B, okay, there are many reasons for, for why they choose. But as an ecosystem, we are trying to uh, be competitive compared to other ecosystems. Got it. So we've talked about why Israel is so startup friendly. And in fact, there's a, a great book called The Startup Nation, which I'll link to in the show notes of this uh, podcast episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But also, it seems to be a particularly plant-based or alternative protein-friendly country. And when you look at per capita rates of vegetarianism, for example, uh, Israel ranks really highly, uh, more high than any other country aside from India, which obviously has a lot of religiously based vegetarianism. So why do you think it is that Israel happens to be so veg friendly? There are so many vegetarians. Now, at the same time, it has a very high per capita rate of meat consumption, too. So Israel's per capita meat consumption is not that far below the U.S., which is the the world leader in, in meat consumption per person. But despite having very high meat consumption, it also has a pretty vegetarian-friendly food scene and a lot of vegetarians. Why? So basically what we are saying that we are eating a lot of meat and a lot of veg-based diet and a lot of everything because we like to eat. There's a lot of eating. Okay. Exactly. Uh, so, so, so the culinary scene in Israel has uh, developed in the last 20 years dramatically. And, and the food here, and, and, and I'm sure you can, you can testify for yourself, the food here is really good. And, and people are, are dedicated time and money into food. This is, this is a lot of thing around food, culture, etc. But I think uh, that specifically to the, the high percentage of, of vegetarian and vegan people, I think this is just because Israelis are early adapters and we like to try new things and we like to, you know, all the new diets being uh, keto and, and uh, uh, intermediate fasting or whatever. So many Israelis adapt that because this is, this is our culture to, to try things. Not necessarily we would stick to them, 
but we, we like to try new things. You just got back from Northern California and saw that the investment landscape for alternative proteins is a far cry from what it was a few years ago. Yeah. We're in 24. In 2021, the money was free flowing to alternative proteins. In 2024, it is not. It's not totally dried up, but it's a much drier capital landscape. One, I'd love to know why you think that is. And two, is it the same in Israel? Are there, is there a harder investment landscape, especially for alternative proteins than a few years ago? Yes, there is a definitely harder for alternative protein. And I think among food verticals, alternative protein is, is probably the, the most challenging. Yes, it is the same in Israel, exactly the same in Israel. And, and I think that there are uh, various reasons. Um, first of all, I think that at the end of the day, yes, it is food tech, but at the end of the day, it's food. And some of us forgot that this is food. And food needs to be tasty, healthy, affordable. And, and the fact that there is tech behind food doesn't mean that the consumer would, you know, give up on the three things that I said. And it's, now it's obvious, and you're laughing, but there were startups that thought that, hey, I have a cool technology. It's not that tasty, but hey, the technology is amazing. I was able to do blah, 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 blah. And I think what we are seeing right now is that we are taking aside the tech component in the food tech and enlarging the, the, the weight of the food in the food tech. And the food has many, I would say, must have. So everything I said was the consumer perspective from shareholder perspective. If you're not able to get to 40% gross margin, don't even start. If you're not being able to scale up your business and have enough capacity, don't even start. And those are the things that uh, we are seeing right now. So I think that the, the situation right now makes us be more efficient, closer to consumer, a better product market fit, and better economics. Why then, if you go back to, let's say, 2021, when a company like Beyond Meat was really wonderful revenue, you know, they were like 400 million US dollars in revenue, and the technology was identical to what it was before and now, right? Like they didn't have different technologies. Similarly, the food tasted the same. It was about the same price. And yet today, a few years later, the revenue has actually contracted. You know, companies don't just want to see margin. They want to see also increased revenue and their revenue has actually declined. So why is it? You know, I don't want to say that Beyond Meat is a proxy for everybody, but it's the only publicly traded company in the space for the most part. Why do you think that demand for plant-based meat is not what it once was considering like, you know, maybe people are making more food, less tech, but why, like, why is it that plant-based meat is doing worse? Not just from an investment perspective, but is actually selling less today than yesterday. So, so this is really an area I, I don't want to get too much details about that. I think that that was spoken, you know, a lot. I would just say that there was a great disappointment. And I think that the most uh, important thing that consumers would disappoint about is about the, the health claim. So people thought that if they give up on meat, it's healthier because of the cholesterol, because of the antibiotics. But then they found out that the label is like 30 ingredients label. 
And there are many more things, but again, beyond beyond and impossible are facing so challenging times. And the only thing I can wish them is they would overcome, they would fix whatever needs to be fixed, and they would fly again. And I think this is for all of us. I think that the food tech uh, uh, space is now experiencing challenging times, and we all need to look at similar industries when they emerge. You know, even go to the dot-com in the 2000s. And, you know, there was a great expectation and then the bubble burst and then slowly but surely the good companies survived and we have dot com and this did change our life. It just took longer than what we anticipated. The same thing for clean tech, the same thing for automotive mobile. So in that vein, then, what about cultivated meat? Because you're talking about plant-based companies like Impossible and Beyond and saying that they're facing really tough headwinds right now. Clearly, they are. But the cultivated meat space has also not reached the level that many would have thought. So if you take Ala Farms, a company that you're invested in, you know, they were founded in 2017. So now we're seven years later and still pre-revenue, but they are making real tangible progress, like really amazing things are happening for them, including, as, uh, as you know, they recently had the first ever regulatory approval for any cultivated meat in Israel and the first of its kind for beef anywhere in the world. So really, really amazing uh, progress on that front. But it's not just them. The entire cultivated meat space, you know, you had the first burger served in 2013 by Mark Post in London. And the first company, Memphis Meats, are now Upside Foods, founded in 2015. And here we are in 2024. And basically, you could count the number of kilograms of cultivated meat that's been sold on the market, essentially. So why hasn't this industry made a bigger dent yet? And when do you think it will start making a dent? So like may, many pioneers, you know, you jump to the water without really understanding what entails. And I think that's, that's typical across all innovation. And I've spoken with many entrepreneurs that told me, had I known what was waiting for me ahead, I would have not started that. So I'm sure you heard that as well. So, so the beauty of being entrepreneur is that, you know, you're, I would say, a, a careless enough to start something without thinking about all the consequences. This is why you work for a startup and not for a big corporate. And yes, I think that Aleph, like many other good companies, did not foresee all the challenges and, and all the uh, difficulties in having a serum-free media. You know, this is, this is a big one in scaling up from one liter to 10 liter to 100 liter. So this acts differently and many, many challenges that they are facing. But with the faith that we are going to change the world in a big time, in a big time. And the opportunity is huge because right now, alternative meat, whatever type of protein is less than a percent, I think even less than a half percent uh, than total meat. Then the opportunity is huge. I think that when the product meets everything that I spoke about before, taste, texture, nutritional values, affordability, uh, um, you know, look, uh, and many other things the consumer care about, um, the, the, the numbers would, would be really attractive. So it's time to stick to your original vision and fix the problems. So, but just to be clear, Jonathan, nothing has happened that leads you to believe that they can't achieve that. You, you still think they can get there on affordability, for example, that they can eventually sell cultivated meat at the same price as conventional animal-based meat? Yes, for sure. On the contrary, the things that I saw 
and, and I'm a board member at Aleph Farms. By the way, Aleph Farms is a company that we co-founded. I didn't speak about that, but we have a venture studio in which we are licensing technologies from universities. We recruit the team. We put the first check. And we are basically building the companies. And we've done that several times. So probably 10 out of 25 companies are, are venture built. And, and in Aleph Farms, I think that when, when I look backward uh, at the problems that they solve, and the progress that they've made in all aspects, okay, being the taste and the textures, but also being the scalability, being the cost of cost affordness, uh, cost competitiveness, um, the trajectory is very promising. Yeah, and of course, I'm I'm using Olive Farms as a proxy for the rest of the space, just because you're most familiar with them. But there's dozens of these companies uh, scattered around the world who are trying to make this happen from uh, Upside Foods to Mosa Meat and so on. So uh, I, I share your enthusiasm. So I, I will say, you know, when I wrote the book Queen Meat, which came out now six years ago, if you had told me that six years later that there would be 100 companies in the space, billions of dollars of capital flowing in, I would have been really, really enthusiastic. At the same time, if you had told me that they would barely be on the market anywhere by six years later, I would have been disappointed. And there's a new copy of the book. Uh, Simon & Schuster is putting out a paperback updated edition this April. So there'll be a, a new updated edition of Queen Meat, which uh, has a little bit more on Israel in there actually than the original one did. And you know, I address this issue in there of you know where is all of the cultivated meat? <laughs> you know, where where is it? Right? And I think I, I think of it as something maybe like uh, fusion energy, which is that when fusion starts feeding into the grid, you know it's going to be a really massive change, a big transformation in how we get energy. But it's probably still several years away. In fact, even Upside Foods, which is the most well-funded of these companies, says that they don't plan to have product on supermarket shelves until the year 2030. And so you know that's a, a pretty long way away for a company that was founded in 2015. But I hope that they're right. I, I really hope. Yeah. I, so I look I look forward to reading your book. I enjoyed very much the previous one. I look forward to to read the updated one. But I have to to bring up a, a super important point that we've not addressed yet, and probably with your assistance we can. And this is the government support. And and. We, when, when, when we look at Davos that, that ended last week, um, we, we have to realize that the, the task is so ambitious that successful entrepreneurs, you know, daring VCs are great, but they're not enough. And, and when, we're, when we're talking about scale-up, we need to see government dollars assisting those companies. Like in any other space that the government want to encourage for the best of of the people and that that has not happened yet and hopefully you know people like yourself like gfi bruce can can make that happen because this is exactly what the industry needs i totally agree i i think that it's absolutely imperative to have a government assistance like this in fact if you look in the united states at the inflation reduction act or the ira that was passed it's got billions of dollars of incentives for companies to go toward clean energy it's very very heavy on carrots and very very light on sticks and i think we need something similar yeah. in the alternative protein space we need something that is going to incentivize the major food companies the Strausses of the world all over the, you know, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere to start investing more heavily 
in animal-free food technologies. It's imperative from a climate perspective. It's imperative from a food safety and uh, food security perspective. I mean, I, I look at uh, my own home. You know, I live in Sacramento, California. We have solar panels on the roof. These solar panels were produced in China. And, you know, so many of the solar, of the solar technology that we use and the wind turbines and so on are not produced in the United States. And that's because China and other Asian countries really helped to incentivize their local industries to do this. And so now the United States is largely dependent on Asia for our clean energy technology. Maybe this will change with the Inflation Reduction Act, but so far we are. And that's one thing to be uh, dependent for clean energy on other countries. But you don't want that for food, especially. And we know that China is also incentivizing their own local industry to get more into the animal-free food technologies. And if we want to continue, you know, America always calls itself the breadbasket to the world. If we want to be the meat basket to the world, we're going to have to embrace more of these alternative food technologies that will eventually not be alternative anymore. And so I've been in, impressed by some countries that seem to be doing uh, more on this, like. Um, Denmark is now moving toward government policies to try to have at least national aims of meat reduction. In the U.S., we're going in the wrong direction on this. Like There have been some government assistance, like $5 million here, $10 million there. But these are very small numbers when you consider that, I mean, right now the U.S. is spending a billion dollars alone on, to increase the nation's animal slaughter capacity. Huh. Not in loans, ju just in grants, just in grants, not in loans. So you know, you look at that, and it's just like, we are really going in the wrong direction on that. So I uh, echo your sentiment that this is not the proper role just for the venture capital community to make this happen. There's got to be some type of government incentivization to help toward a transition here. Yeah. So I, I do hope that I, I amen. <laughs> That's the only thing I can say. Yeah, very good. Okay. So I do, you know, at the beginning of the of this conversation, Jonathan, I mentioned that Food Tech IL had been uh, postponed because of the horrific atrocities that happened on October 7th. Uh, but that was just one setback for the entrepreneurial community. Obviously, the victims of the actual violence and their families are the, primarily the most impacted. But surely this has had a pretty dramatic impact on the entrepreneurial community in Israel, even beyond losing Food Tech IL for the year. So what other impacts have there been? Uh, have you seen companies failing, not able to get investment, having uh, employees or executives uh, having to go serve? Like, What is the, the impact on entrepreneurialism in Israel from October 7th? So there was an impact that was felt mainly on people called to reserve. So in Israel, you obliged to go to reserve duty until you're 40. And some, some of the uh, people working in the startups were called, for example, Aleph Farms, about 15% of the workforce uh, was called to reserve. And uh, in case that uh, you were not called to reserve, there were many female that their husband was called to reserve and with two kids, small kids at home. At the beginning, we didn't have uh, daycare and schools. That was very, very tough. So, uh, you know, we, we are uh, approximately 10 million uh, people in, in this country and 350,000 were called to our reserve. So this is like almost 4% of the population called to reserve. So. Think about 12 million people in, in the States going to reserve and, and leaving wives, et cetera. So this is, this is a huge number. 
and that was felt uh, in all startups. But, and this is a big but, uh, at the very beginning, we uh, learned and we were persistent in sharing that in Zoom calls and meetups, etc. We learned that uh, partners slash investors slash customers would not give us a break for whatever we are undergoing. And we uh, got together and we decided that we are going to deliver no matter what. And, and there was a hashtag, it's called Israel Tech Delivers No Matter What. And this was conveyed to all the startups and the government through the Israel Innovation Authority also joined forces and gave immediate funding to support companies so nobody goes under. And thank God today, I'm not aware of anyone that went under because of the situation. Yes, the challenges was eno were enormous. For example, in one of our portfolio companies, Yeep, that does functional protein from residual yeasts, from side stream of yeast, from the brewing industry. So their CEO uh, is high rank in the reserve, and he was called from day one till probably two weeks ago. So he was just released. So he was there three months. And we had to meet deadlines from customers, for partners, etc. So what we did, we asked another CEO from another company to take care of Yip while the CEO of Yip was in reserve. So that other CEO was managing two companies for three months. And now Jonathan Goshen is back home and is running Yip. So we were doing all kinds of things in order to deliver no matter what. And I don't think that Again, to the best of my knowledge, that anyone, any company in the food tech in Israel uh, went under. It is challenging that investors are not coming. Uh, it is challenging that we don't have, you know, enough flights to bring people and it's not safe yet. But that, again, that requires our, us to act differently and to be uh, more outward facing and to, uh, to spend time at customers, at VCs, etc., rather than coming to see us here. For sure. Yeah. And I, I presume that is why you were just in Northern California. As Correct. Part of that. Correct. Uh, Jonathan, I, I do want to ask you, as somebody who has spent the last decade of your life in the startup community, you've seen a lot of success. You've seen some failure. What resources have you found most useful for you or for the companies that you're working with? that you would recommend to somebody else. So not everybody's going to be as fortunate to be able to go through the kitchens incubation program, but there may be some resources that you would recommend no matter what to anybody who's seeking to start their own company. Yeah. So I think that from, from experience, and I've been a, a CEO for startup myself for five years, you know, at the end of the day, it's like elite sport. At the end of the day, 95% is about mentality and, and, and mental ability and resilience and psychological power. And I think that this is the most challenging thing. And, and I, one thing that really helped me personally, and then I shared that with all the CEOs of, of the kitchen, is a book that is called The Hard Thing About the Hard Things by Ben Horwitz. And I see you are smiling, so probably uh, you also like that book. Yeah, I loved it. There's a great line in it that he uses where he says, and he says in the hard thing about hard things, he says, when you start your own company, you'll sleep like a baby because you're going to wake up every two hours and cry. 
And uh, I, I remember just really laughing out loud when I saw that, given its uh, personal resonance with me as a startup founder myself. Exactly. So, so this is this is my recommendation uh, to startups because this is really helps you uh, build uh, inner resilience. Uh, yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll show you. Um, I uh, for uh, listeners, you're not going to be able to see this, but on my desk, I have this artwork that I had commissioned here. You can see it's Sisyphus finally victorious. So he's yeah. finally. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So yeah. Sisyphus, you know, for those who are less familiar with Greek mythology, you know Sisyphus is sentenced for to push this boulder up the hill, but in perpetuity, it always falls back down. He never gets it to the top. And so I have on my desk to inspire me what I call Sisyphus finally victorious, which is how I view much of my life, including entrepreneurship. So hopefully, hopefully that will come true one day. Hopefully this, this will visualize into something that is true. For sure. Cool. So we'll link Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, in the show notes for this episode of businessforgoodpodcast.com. Finally, Jonathan, I, I do want to ask you, as somebody who has now looked at and screened 1,500 different companies, accepted 27 of them into your incubator, surely there are companies or ideas that you wish existed that don't yet exist, or there aren't enough of them trying to solve a particular problem. So if you could speak to folks right now and tell them, these are the type of companies that I want to see exist, you should go start it. What are they? Um, there are a few things, but a general theme that I'd like to see more is how can AI uh, improve production? And I think that the food industry is facing challenges like safety, like productivity. And I don't know how exactly, but I would expect AI uh, to be a sourceful uh, tool to improve that. So for example, we, we are just analyzing now, or we analyzed until last week, a, 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 potential, a, a potential investment in a company that improves procurement uh, using AI and reducing prices thanks to that. And and I think that like in many other verticals, AI is the next thing. I just don't know exactly how it's going to impact the food system. So I'm welcome entrepreneurs that have the answer to pitch to us. And this is something that, that is missing. Very nice. Well, we had recently on this show, Noah Weiss from Israel, who started Green Protein AI, which is a new mm -hmm. non-organization to try to help companies make better use of extrusion technology for alternative meat yeah. and AI. So maybe that's one way that AI... Exactly. That's, that's a good example. Correct. Yeah. So Jonathan, I want to say thank you. I uh, appreciate all that you have done to incubate a better food industry, especially when it comes to trying to find ways to reduce humanity's reliance on animals for food. So I'm grateful to you. I'm really looking forward to spending time with you at Food Tech IL when it happens again, if not before, but we'll be rooting for your success and hoping that the kitchen has the similar type of success, 25 out of 27 that it's had uh, in the past. So congratulations on all that and we'll talk with you soon. Thank you, Paul. Really enjoy the hour. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves.